TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Feminist Theology and Women in the Muslim World. Dr. Rifat Hassan is a Muslim theologian from Pakistan. She says that since anti-woman legislation and custom are enacted in the name of theology, it is necessary to study the Quran and critique the source. On the basis of my years of study of the Quran, I see as a document which guarantees human freedom and equality. And there is nothing that I see in the Quran which in any way discriminates against women. The interpretation of the Quran has been very heavily influenced by the Hadith literature. In other words, the Hadith literature is the lens through which the Quran itself has been read and translated. So unless we take cognizance of this fact and deal with the Hadith literature, it's very difficult for a lot of people to go back and look at the Quran with fresh eyes. On the basis of the Quran, focusing on the question of creation, there is no difference between the creation of men and women. God created man and woman at the same time in like manner of the same substance. Total equality. On the other hand, this is not what has been believed historically or in the Islamic tradition, and I have referred you to what I believe is the source of it, which is the Hadith literature. Last week you heard how the women's movement in Pakistan asked for her help as early as 1984. They organized in response to the first introduction of anti-women Islamic law in the late 1970s. Rifat Hassan said that this request changed her life. In part one, you heard her fascinating retelling of the story of Adam and Eve, a story that is shared in Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. In the original text, women are neither inferior nor sinful. Adam is not a man's name. It is the word for human. In fact, in the Quran, the original being created by God is feminine, a fact that is concealed in all translations. Another factor came into play that changed the equal standing of women in the Quran. Rifat Hassan says that today we see the Quran through the lens of later writings, the so-called hadiths. These are quotes attributed to the Prophet Muhammad and passed on, not by the Prophet, but by people who say they heard him tell the story. And it is here, and only here, in the Hadiths, that the story of the creation of woman from the rib is told six times. Here is Dr. Rifat Hassan analyzing the six versions of the rib story. That story is used to depict women as inferior, secondary, and even crooked. Rifat Hassan. If you analyze the content of these uh, Hadiths, the following points emerge. One, woman is created from a rib or is like a rib. Two, the most curved or crooked part of the rib is its top. Number three, the crookedness of the rib and of the woman is irremediable. Any effort to remove it will result in breakage. And four, in view of the above, an attitude of kindness is recommended and those who wish to benefit from women are advised to do so, quote, while crookedness remains in her. There is obviously a connection between these hadiths and the rib story in Genesis. But there are also changes. For example, this rib is not the rib of Adam. There is no mention of Adam in any of these hadiths. This is a disembodied rib. 
This is the sort of rib you could buy in a grocery store. <laughs> it could be anybody's rib or anything's rib. Secondly, there is an emphasis on the crookedness of the rib, whatever that means. Then there is this idea that you should not try to do anything about this crookedness. Now, you know, you wonder when you look at these hadiths as to what they mean. I mean, why, what is the meaning of exhorting people to be kind to women because they are irremediably crooked? What does crookedness mean? Is it some sort of a handicap? Now, if it's a physical handicap, and certainly one should be compassionate toward people with physical handicaps, then why should one not try to do something about it? Perhaps the handicap can be, can be eliminated. If it's a moral handicap or an intellectual handicap, uh, then if women are intellectually and morally deficient, then why should people be kind to them? You know, there are certain um, logical problems here when you try to interpret these hadiths. You know, when I first found these hadiths, being Western trained, my first impulse was to do content analysis and I didn't find that very hard at all because there is one law of hermeneutics of interpretation which every Muslim scholar accepts and that is that if any hadith or any number of hadiths are found to be in contradiction to the Quran, you must reject them. The Quran cannot be overturned by a hadith or by a million hadiths. That is a law of interpretation accepted by all Muslim scholars. And therefore, it seemed to me that since all of these hadiths were clearly in contradiction to the Quranic statements about human creation, none of which mentioned the rib or the crookedness of the rib or any such thing, that it would be just very simple to reject these hadiths. But when I did my analysis, content analysis, in which I showed, in which I demonstrated pretty compellingly that these hadiths were clearly in contradiction to Quranic statements about creation, I was told by Muslim scholars that this was not acceptable. This method, methodology was not acceptable because the only way that you can, you can reject a hadith is if you show there is some problem with the isnad. Now fortunately for us, we can still do that in the case of a number of hadiths because at the same time in the, in the second and third century of Islam when the hadiths were being compiled, they were also being compiled encyclopedic works about the transmitters of hadith. So we have these huge books which have information about virtually every person who has narrated a hadith. And so it is possible to go back and rediscover, uh, get some information about these, these people who are mentioned as narrators of these, these hadiths. And I discovered that um, it is possible to argue that there were weaknesses in, this, in the Isnad. The companion mentioned as the initial narrator of all of these six hadiths is a companion known to us as Abu Huraira. Now, Abu Huraira was a very controversial person during his lifetime. He did not spend a very long time with the Prophet, but he narrated a, a very large number of hadiths, and it was a kind of, you know, uh, there was a sort of a, an attitude of fun that other companions had toward him because whenever they would see him coming, they would say, now comes Abu Huraira, let's see what hadith he's going to tell us about now. <laughs> now, I started, I became very interested in learning something about him 
And I started, again, being Western trained, I started by looking at the Encyclopedia of Islam. I read the article on Abu Huraira, and I found in that article, the, it, sta it stated in that article that Abu Huraira was a very controversial companion, and um, his credibility was often questioned by his contemporaries. And I said, well, that's good. You know, I found some material here that's important. But then, of course, I learned very soon in, in discourse with other Muslim scholars that it is not possible today for a Muslim scholar to quote the Encyclopedia of Islam because guess where the Encyclopedia of Islam is published? It's published in the Netherlands by Leiden Press, E.J. Brill, which is the hotbed of Christian missionaries. So you cannot quote a Christian missionary author against a companion of the prophet. So you, that, that won't work. So I looked for an, uh, for an Islamic source. One source that I found was an 8th century Mutazalite philosopher by the name of Nazam. And quoting from Nazam, Nazam said, he said, I reject the entire canon of Hadith on account of Abu Huraira. He was the worst of liars. Now that's a very strong statement. But of course, how could one, anyone, accept the word of a Mutazalite philosopher against that of a companion of the Prophet? I mean, it's, it's absolutely impossible. So then the difficulty is, you know, what kind of source do you, are you going to use? Well, I was able to find one source which I think can be used because of its credibility. The source is Imam Abu Hanifa, who is the founder of the Hanafi school, which is the largest school of Islamic law, who in general did not accept many hadiths in his school of law, but he, he in one place, talks about three companions whose hadiths he was not willing to accept, and one of them was Abu Huraira. In fact, he names him first. Now, I want to uh, point out to you the seriousness of the situation here, because up till this point in time, it has not been possible to raise any critical question about the companions of the Prophet. It's, as Goldzier has pointed out, it's a capital crime to question any companion. It's a capital crime. Now, the problem is further compounded by the fact that there is no clear definition of who is a companion. Now, there are some companions of the Prophet that we are very sure about. We know about them because they spent their whole lifetime with the Prophet and they are very well-known and well-respected figures. But the list of companions is a very long list, and there are many people who are listed amongst the companions who may have spent a very short time with the Prophet, about whom we really don't know very much at all, but somehow they have become subsumed under this general category. So this is another area in which very little work has been done to determine in a precise or exact way who is a companion. Another important point here is that it's a consensus of Islamic scholars that the great majority of hadiths were fabricated. This was, of course, the consensus of Bukhari and Muslims themselves. Imam Muslim examined more than 600,000 hadiths and accepted less than 3,000 of them as authentic. So he rejected the vast majority of the hadiths as inauthentic. So the question of, you know, the authenticity of the hadiths is a very, it's a very important question. Now, when we look at a hadith, and we, we say it's inauthentic, what is being said is that the inauthenticity could relate to the matan, to the content, or to the isnad. So while on the one hand we can raise all these 
critical questions about Abu Huraira in the context of these traditions that I have mentioned. Uh, but one can also say, how can we be absolutely sure that Abu Huraira narrated any of these traditions? Because you know, if you can fabricate the content of a hadith, you can also fabricate the isnad of a hadith. I am mentioning these points to you in order to illustrate to you the great difficulty of studying this body of material. But it is in this body of material, I am quite sure about this point, that the attitudes of the Muslims, particularly their negative attitudes towards women, are rooted much more in the Hadith literature than in the Quran. Because the Quran, on the basis of my years of study of the Quran, I see as a document which guarantees human freedom and equality. And there is nothing that I see in the Quran which in any way discriminates against women. The way that the Quran has been interpreted, the interpretation of the Quran has been very heavily influenced by the Hadith literature. In other words, the Hadith literature is the lens through which the Quran itself has been read and translated and interpreted. So unless we take cognizance of this fact and deal with the Hadith literature, it's very difficult for a lot of people to go back and look at the Quran with fresh eyes. Okay, so what's my conclusion? Well, my conclusion is as follows. On the basis of the Quran, focusing on the question of creation, there is no difference between the creation of men and women. God created man and woman at the same time in like manner of the same substance. Total equality. On the other hand, this is not what has been believed historically or in the Islamic tradition, and I have referred you to what I believe is the source of it, which is the Hadith literature. Now, on the basis of my research, on the basis of my, both my content analysis as well as my analysis of the, of the Isnad, I show in my work that the Hadiths should be and must be rejected because they do contradict the Quran and they are also formally weak, that we can show problems in the Isnad itself. Okay, this issue is so important because if God created man and woman equal, and God is the giver of ultimate value, if God created man and woman equal, then if they subsequently become unequal in human society, which they have become in virtually all human societies, this cannot be in accordance with the will of God, because God created them equal. If on the other hand, God did not create man and woman equal, as is believed by the majority of the people in our traditions, then trying to make them equal as these perverse feminists are trying to do is something which is subverting the plans of God. So then this is the fundamental question. Did God create man and woman equal or not equal? On the basis of my study, I have no hesitation whatsoever in saying that God, in fact, did create man and woman equal, and that therefore, any kind of inequality that exists is a manifest sign of injustice, not only towards human beings, but in a sense, it's an act of disobedience toward God. Now, my final question, which is addressed to activists, because I consider myself a human rights activist, and I do my scholarship, I do my studying, because I hope and believe that this study is necessary in order to liberate human beings, that it's going to make a difference to people's lives. In that context, I want to say the following. I want to refer you to something that one of my teachers once said to me. 
is a Muslim man, scholar, who had studied the Quran for many years. And he said to me once, he said, you know, supposing you are traveling on a train, and at some point the train gets derailed, gets off the proper track, and starts going in some other direction. And you realize after a while that you've gone 20 miles off track. You cannot at that point switch tracks. What you have to do first is you have to go back to the point of origin where you got derailed and then get on the right track. Okay? The same point was made by the philosopher Santiana who said, those who do not know their history are destined to repeat it. Women need to know the point at which they got derailed and we got derailed at the very beginning. So we need to get back to the point of origin and then get on the proper track. That's the only way that we are ever going to be liberated. There is no other way. Thank you. That was Dr. Rifat Hassan, feminist, Muslim theologian, and human rights activist from Pakistan. She had time for an interview, and the following day, we met at UC Berkeley. I wanted to know more about the common story that women share in all three religions. Rifat Hassan. I think that there are many things in common to these three traditions. They have a common theological framework. They are all patriarchal. Uh, they are monotheistic. They believe in prophets and sacred texts and accountability for actions and so on. I think they also share the myths which oppress them. You know, the, the myth that Adam was God's primary creation and Eve was created out of the rib of it. Adam was derivative and secondary, that she was responsible for the fall, and she was created not only from him, but for him. I think this is a myth that is shared by all three religions and has been very detrimental to women's position. I think that when Jewish, Christian, and Muslim women begin to engage in dialogue with each other and begin to study their text together and begin to realize that um, they share the, the roots of the, their bondage and, and their exploitation, that there are many avenues emerge in which they can work together. Once people become knowledgeable, when women begin to see this, they can cooperate. But unfortunately, there are so few opportunities at this point of bringing Jewish, Muslim, and Christian women together. It's kind of strange because in the context of the ecumenical movement, you know, there's a lot of dialogue going on between Jews, Christians, and Muslims in many places, in, and it's increasing. But um, like the rest of the ecumenical movement, it focuses so little on women's issues. So I really think that the time has come for Jewish, Christian, and Muslim women to take the matter in their own hands and to make their own groups, discussion groups, because I think that at the heart of these traditions lies the idea of justice. And if they can work with that to uh, attain justice for each other, and, and I think that women traditionally and intuitively and elemental, elementally are work better together than men and are peacemakers and uh, that uh, it's possible that if women start working together that they may be able to find solution not only to women's issues but to world issues you know such as peace and justice and hunger and so many other things it's actually interesting meeting you because you take the religion in which you were raised very seriously and i was raised christian and i thought all i needed to do was deny its existence mm -hmm. and step out of it into a secular world. Mm -hmm.
but I, I find now the secular world does not give an explanation of patriarchy mm -hmm. and it only offers what you very interestingly criticized mm -hmm. equality with mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. you know I, I meet a lot of people who make the statement well you know I'm I, I come from a Christian background or Jewish background but I'm not really religious and I always say to them religion is not just uh, doctrine or dogma, you ma might have rejected the doctrine or dogma of your religion, but religion has to do with the way that you see the whole world. Religion has so many dimensions, ethical, social, mythological, ritual, etc., and nobody is without religion of some sort. You know, you may consciously deny it, but that's where your, where your consciousness is rooted. Therefore, in a way, you have to deal with it. As far back as we can go in human history, people were never without religion or some sort of religious consciousness. And I frequently get asked this question, you know, why do you, it's so difficult for you to be a Muslim woman because there's so much hostility, so much resistance to the sort of work that you're doing. Isn't it just simply easier to walk away from it and be free of it? And my answer to that is that I'm very concerned about uh, the situation of Muslim women, and I know that women, Muslim women, are so devout and so religious that for them the only way to freedom lies within the tradition and not outside of the tradition. That in, if I want to be able to be of any service to them at all, uh, I have to work within the tradition. So it's not only for religious or spiritual or theological reasons, but for practical reasons as well, that if you want to be effective, you have to learn to work within the tradition. Each tradition has something of value in it. It also has elements in it that are outmoded and they need to be critiqued. I don't think that any tradition should be deified and idolized. Uh, but I also do not think that one can just take a tradition and throw it out of the window without any kind of um, critical examination of what is of value in it. We all come from a tradition and that we need to be uh, conversant with it and we need in some way to try to redeem it to whatever extent we can and not reject it out of hand. And you're right, I do take my tradition very seriously and uh, I think that's why my work has relevance to people or people find it relevant to their lives. One small question I wanted to ask you out of personal interest. When I started rereading the story of Adam and Eve, I actually thought mm -hmm. I should take pride in the fact that mm -hmm. Eve brought up the question of consciousness, yeah. and that as women we couldn't really be proud about that s step. Is there any uh, theological uh, backing? Yes, absolutely. You find theological backing for that, I think, in the work of recent theologians uh, in uh, these traditions. For instance, Phyllis Tribble, uh, who is a very uh, important uh, Christian uh, theologian, works with textual analysis, interprets this, the story of the fall, so-called fall, and she says the serpent addressed the woman uh, because, in a sense, she was the leader of the two. And uh, in, in seizing the initiative and conducting the dialogue, she proved that you know she was the one with the discernment and she was the one with the decision. Of course, the interesting thing is that, as most people think, you know, this story is in chapter 3 of Genesis, most people think that when Eve was having this dialogue with, with the, the serpent, Adam was far away and did not participate in it. But the fact of the matter is that um, Adam was with her, 
as as you know the new translations say that there's a, a word called ima in the hebrew text which means that when he was with her and that was omitted from from translations of that story for hundreds of years so the people got the impression that she was alone when she talked with the serpent but adam was with her all the time so it's not that he, but he was silent and uh, that i think puts a whole new complexion on the story but to answer your question in another way also for, for instance in the islamic tradition there is no fall at all because uh, according to the quran adam was always meant for the earth he was from the earth and meant for the earth and so what you call the 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 fall is in fact a state of transition from paradise to the earth it's sort of like this when we are in a state of infancy we are in paradise because we are protected and then when we reach the point where we can start exercising freedom of will which is what eve does at that point she exercises her freedom of will then we come of age we become reach maturity and then we are able to be god's representatives on earth and so it it so happens that the first act of freedom of free will of the human beings was one of disobedience they disobeyed god but nonetheless it was still an act which represented freedom of choice and when god gave human beings the right to to choice free choice god took a risk but the almighty was willing to take it and and there is no suggestion in the quranic text that god is angry with the with the two uh, they admit that they were wrong and they ask god's forgiveness and god forgives them you know there is not no fall really there's just a transition so i think you're right i think she does something which brings knowledge so she she is the pioneer and i think it is something to be proud of uh, i think that the story of the fall has been grossly grossly misrepresented and misunderstood it has quite a different meaning from what people attach to it just like the story of creation i think it meant something different from the way it got interpreted in the context of a very patriarchal very biased culture these myths are now being reinterpreted i think almost re-revealed in a sense and i think it's going to have a wonderful impact on women's perceptions of themselves in the future that was an interview of feminist theologian dr wifat hasan we met in the guest house of the university of california berkeley with a clock of the campanile chiming in the background she had agreed to see me after her april 1993 talk Feminist Theology and Women in the Muslim World. This talk had been given in the spirit of peace and justice and to support a common bond among women of the three patriarchal religions of the world, Islam, Christianity and Judaism. Rifat Hassan has since retired after 33 years of teaching in the U.S. She gave courses not only in theology, but also in literary criticism, Shakespeare, romantic poets, international relations, and foreign policy. However, through all her academic accomplishments, and to this day, she was and is a human rights activist on behalf of women. Rifat Hassan was professor of religious studies and humanities at the University of Louisville, Kentucky, She received her Ph.D. from Durham University, U.K. in 1968 and has taught in many institutions, including Oklahoma State University and Harvard Divinity School. 
This was a rare TUC Radio Archive recording brought back for International Women's Month. You can hear this program again on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. That's tucradio.org. Look under Newest Programs. Time of useful consciousness is an aeronautical term. It's the time between the beginning of oxygen deficiency and the loss of consciousness. Time for useful projects to rescue the planet and the plane. My name is Maria Gelerden. Thank you for listening. Give us a call. <laughs>